0: Good morning. It's great to be with you. This feels like my second home. I love being here. Uh, love being here to share the word of God with you. It's such a privilege. Uh, if you could open up your Bibles, please, to uh, Matthew chapter six, verses 25 to 34. I believe the scriptures will also appear on the screen. There they are. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so you can follow along. There. Um, you've got the NIV up there. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, which I call the Extra Special Version. Uh, So there might be a few little differences, but um, not too many. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Know about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and then tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you or you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father, we pray that as we read your word this morning, and as we consider what it says and what it means for us, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We ask that you would posture our hearts ready to hear you. We pray that faith would be ignited in us this morning. And Father, we ask that you would cause us to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you'll probably know, this teaching is found in what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. I know that many of you are going to be familiar uh, with this portion of Scripture, but there might be people here who aren't familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so it's worth reminding ourselves of the context of the, of the Scripture. Um, Jesus is speaking to his followers here. He gathered his disciples together to teach them. He isn't speaking to unbelievers mainly. There might have been unbelievers in the vicinity listening on, hearing what he was saying. But he wasn't mainly speaking to unbelievers. He was speaking to believers. He's speaking to disciples. And that's important because otherwise you might read these commands and you might view them as something an unbeliever is expected to do or to attain before they can be in right relationship with God when in fact the sermon on the mount is given to people who are already in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone so that they can know how to live a life that's worthy of the salvation that they've received as a free gift of God's grace and you know these teachings are they're impossible to attain without the empowering Of the Holy Spirit. I hope you feel like that when you read these. I hope you don't read these and just think, oh, I can do that. These things are impossible to do without God's help. So, in that sense, whenever you read a text like the one that we've just read today, and you really consider what it's saying to you and what it's calling you to do, that should look to you like a mountain that's impossible for you to scale. Yet, as a follower of Christ, you don't despair. You don't throw in the towel. Instead, you recognize that with God, and specifically with the infilling and the empowering of God's Spirit, all things are possible, including obedience to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. So not only is this portion of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, it's in a particular place within the Sermon on the Mount. It comes as part of Jesus' teaching on money. I think Ryan was speaking last week. Is that right? I haven't got that. Yeah, I thought you were. Um, So if you were here last week, you would have heard some of that. Um, So the topic is money, and Jesus spoke loads about money in the Scriptures. Sixteen of his 38 parables in the Gospel were about how to handle money and possessions. That's a huge proportion, around 10% of the verses... In the, in the Gospels as a whole, is about money and possessions. So clearly how we view money and how we handle money is a great concern to Jesus. And it's a huge consequence to our spiritual lives. So let's just give a little recap. In, in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus commands his followers to be people who do not store up treasure on the earth, but in heaven. And he reminds us that our hearts are increasingly drawn to the places where we sow our money. Therefore, we should be a people who take our resources and sow them into the things of heaven rather than just accumulating more and more stuff on the earth, stuff for ourselves. Then in verses uh, 22 to 23 of chapter 6, Jesus speaks about having a healthy spiritual eye, which is about not having our spiritual sight darkened by the love of possessions. Then he teaches us in verse 24 that money can indeed become a master. So we've got this choice to make, all of us. Are we going to be mastered by money and possessions and stuff? Or are we going to be mastered by God? And that leads us swiftly on to our passage today, which is a command directed towards Christians who are in danger of being mastered by money. And I think it's safe to say that all of us could fall into that category. We could all be in danger of being mastered uh, by material things and by finances, especially when we live in this culture which is so affluent. We, you know, I, There is lots of poverty around, I, I, I totally get that. But if you compare us to the rest of the world, even poor people in this country are in the top percentage in, in, in terms of being affluent in the world. So we live in a country of affluence, Uh, We live in a country that is dominated by the allure of material things. Switch your TV on, go on the internet, walk in Eldon Square, walk in the metro centre, walk down the street, you are bombarded by lifestyle choices of where to spend your money and how to spend your money to furnish the passions of your flesh. It's a very difficult place to live as a Christian in that sense. It's easier in some regards We're not hugely persecuted and we don't suffer things that other believers do in other parts of the world. But goodness, we're in danger because of the allure of money and material stuff. In today's passage, what Jesus does is he extrapolates what it can look like when a person is mastered by money. And he explains that it can manifest in a life of anxiety or a life that's controlled or directed by worry. You see... We can think that a person that's mastered by money is mainly driven by greed or is mainly driven by covetousness. I want this, I want that, I want the other. But for most Christians I know, the danger surrounding money is not that they desire a bigger house or the flashiest car in the street. It's not that they're wanting loads of extravagant holidays. But it's more that they're just worried about having enough to survive and be comfortable. And that worry over money, drives and dictates and directs their lives and the decisions that they make in life. And in this passage, Jesus says three times, do not be anxious. Now, these these words really hit home for me. Like, you know, we all have struggles in our life, don't we? We all have things that we handle better than other people and things that we struggle with more than other people. Probably my greatest struggle through life has been with anxiety. i I fought against torrents of anxiety throughout my life for as long as I can remember. And I call them torrents because when they come, they feel like a wave. All of a sudden it comes over you and it consumes you. And it it consumes you to a point where it dominates your thinking and you begin to view everything through the light of trying to find a way to get rid of your anxiety. just totally consumes you. And as I said previously, Jesus has given this teaching in the context of money. He's speaking about Christians who are living their lives anxious, but anxious about accumulating the resources to preserve their life and body. Where's the next meal coming from? Am I going to have enough to eat? Am I family going to have enough to eat? Are we going to have enough to drink? Are we going to have clothes to wear? And although Jesus didn't mention it, I think we could probably throw housing into that equation as well. He's not speaking just specifically of three things. He's speaking generally about a person who is concerned to preserve their life and their well-being to a point where that becomes the compass for the life decisions that they make. And that's true of most of the world. That is how most of the world lives. I know that I was raised to view those things as my primary life goal. I was conditioned for that. Maybe you were as well. I was taught, okay, the goal of life, you get a decent education so you can get yourself a steady job. Sam, you don't need the best job in the world, but you need a steady job and you need a steady income so you can buy a house, get a deposit, buy a house, put food on the table, and then you can put 10%, 20% aside for your pension so when you retire, you've got enough to live comfortably for the rest of your days. And then if you can just make it to the grave, safe and sound. And I was taught that my purpose for existing was to preserve my existence. That was the goal of life. It wasn't put in such crass terms, but essentially that's how I was conditioned as I grew up. Many of you, because you live in this country, you've been conditioned that way. As you've grown up, some—I wasn't born into a Christian family, so maybe it was a bit different for me. And maybe, as you grew up as Christians, you were conditioned another way. But that's definitely the way I was conditioned. But Jesus is saying that as Christians, as ones who have God as our Father, that should not be how we live. We should not live the way the world lives. Worry about these things cannot dictate our life decisions. Is life not more than food? and the body more than clothing, Jesus says. He's telling us that we've been given life by God for a much higher purpose than merely existing. You know, we get, we get one life, which passes very, very quickly in this age. And anxiety over the basic necessities of life causes you to waste the life that God's given you. So Jesus is speaking to you this morning. And he's saying, living, worrying, about how you're going to accumulate the wealth to buy the food you need and the drink that you need and the clothing that you need is to waste the life that God's given you. It's to miss the point. It's to miss the reason why he's given you life on this earth while you're here. He's saying, think differently to the rest of the world. Act differently. Live differently. Make different life choices. Let the basis of the life choices you make, the foundation, be totally different to the rest of the world. Jesus goes on and he gives some reflections from nature which speak into this lifestyle of anxiety that can so easily grip us. And in his reflections, he reveals a few things. He reveals how we should think about God. He reveals how God views us and thinks about us. And he also reveals what this lifestyle of worry over basic necessities reveals about our true spiritual condition. So the first picture we've got is of these birds who are fed by God. And Jesus reminds us, they don't sow, they don't reap, and they don't gather into barns, so they've got enough for the future. But they're fed. And he says, they're fed by our heavenly Father. And the title Jesus gives there, it's not an accident. It's not just a random choice. It's significant. He's our heavenly Father. That he's in heaven is that he's on the throne. He is sovereign over all things, Without exertion, without effort, he can direct the hearts of kings, of rulers, of presidents, of prime ministers. How much more can he direct the heart of any of us or anybody around us to bring people into your life or things into your life to provide for you? He's the God who dictates the boundaries of the nations. He's the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the God who sent manna from heaven to his people in the wilderness. He's the God who directed ravens to bring food to Elijah. He's above and over all things. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows how much is in your bank account. He knows how much isn't in your bank account. He knows what's in your pantry and in your cupboards. He knows how many mouths you have to feed in your family. It is not a problem for him to move circumstances to give us what we need to survive. We, we shouldn't necessarily expect that our provision is just going to fall from the clouds onto our doorstep. You know, the God of heaven has done that, and he can't do that. But generally, his provision is more subtle. You know, from his heavenly throne, he changes circumstances, and he moves hearts to bring provision for his children. And that's the second point of how we should think about God, not only is he in heaven and sovereign and on the throne, but he's our father in heaven. He's your father, which means that you're his child. And if we, being parents who are naturally evil, can give good gifts to our children, how much more will our perfect father in heaven give you everything you need to survive? If he's willing to give his son for you, to sacrifice his son on the cross when you were his enemy, how much more is he now going to provide food and drink and clothing to ensure that you survive so you can do his will on the earth? Now, we've got to be really cautious not to do what some people would do with this revelation of God as our father, to think that he's just going to give us whatever we want, like some heavenly sugar daddy. That's a distortion, and that's a misapplication, which is quite a popular distortion and misapplication in some evangelical circles today. And in fact, when you think about it, it's, it's a picture not of a good father, but of a bad father. Oh, he's a good father. You're a child of the kingdom. He'll give you whatever you want. What kind of good father gives their kids whatever they want? That's neglect. That's unloving. That's detrimental. That's detrimental. A good father knows what their kids need and he he gives their kids what they need. And this is Jesus' point here. God has the ability. He's in heaven. God has the desire. He loves you as his child. And then in case we struggle to get that message and and to accept it, because some of us might, Jesus is very explicit. He says, are you not more valuable than the birds that he feeds? These birds that don't, sow reap or store into bonds. are you not more valuable than they? And of course the answer is yes. We're the pinnacle of his creation. We're the apple of his eye. We're here to live for his glory. So of course he will provide for us. And then he uses another comparison in verses 28 to 30. Just as the, bird gets, the birds get fed and watered by God, the flowers of the field are clothed by him. They are, and they aren't clothed because they focus on toiling And on spinning, toiling is how a man would work. The man would toil in the field. Spinning is how the woman would work in the first century. She would work at home, spinning. They're not clothed because of their efforts, but because they're part of God's creation. And to a degree, even the grass reveals his glory. That which has been made reveals his glory. And Jesus makes a point about the length of their existence They're here one day, they're gone the next day. Again, a comparison. If God so clothes the grass, which is disposable after a day and has no eternal value, how much more will he ensure you have what you need to survive? So the birds, without any effort of their own, they're fed and watered. And the grass, without working at all, is clothed. How much more will you be cared for because of your eternal value to your heavenly Father? You know, living free from worry on this issue of having enough to survive, it's a theological issue and it's a faith issue. It's about how we view God and how we think God views us. And we've got to pray and we've got to plead with God that he would give us spiritual eyes to see his power towards us and his care towards us as our heavenly father. So Jesus reveals this truth about how we should view God and how God views us. But he also reveals the spiritual condition of a person whose life decisions are controlled by worry over the basic necessities of life. In verse 27, he asks this rhetorical question. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his or her life? And of course, the answer is none of us. Not one of us. We know that, don't we? Our days on the earth are in the hands of God, they're numbered before they come to pass. Every single day that was ordained for you in his book is, 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 is given. Before you're born. Then in verse 30, he gives a more straightforward rebuke. He says, oh you of little faith. or oh, you of little faith. These two comments from Jesus, it, they form the picture of what's going on in the heart of a person whose main life focus is on accumulating enough to survive. That person is living a faithless life. And actually they're believing they can look after themselves and control their own destiny. In a sense, they're acting as their own God. To put it more acutely, they've not fully given themselves into the hands of God and said to him, Father, my life is yours. I'm completely, completely surrendered to you. I'm going to do whatever you ask of me. Father, I'm not putting any boundaries on what you're going to ask me to do or where you're going to call me to go. I will go wherever you call me. I am dead to myself and I'm alive to Christ. I live to labor for him. That is why I'm alive. So if your life decisions are based on just making sure you've got enough to survive, God's not your master. Money's your master. Jesus is not your shepherd. Anxiety's your shepherd. That's what's guiding you. And if you think I've taken that a little bit too far, then look at what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. You know, when Jesus gave these teachings, there was no concept of Gentile believers. Gentiles were godless pagans. That's what he's saying. You're behaving like a godless pagan. Jesus is saying, when you live your life stressing over self-preservation, you're just behaving like the world. You're just thinking like an unbeliever. Why? Because the world lives with these things as the main goal of their life. Just go and read most lifestyle magazines. You'll see the emphasis is on food, it's on drink, and it's on clothing. It's on those, those three things. They're all over the place. The world lives to tend to the body. That should not be the case for a Christian. So then that begs the question, okay, how then should a Christian live? And the first thing I want to say in response to that is how we shouldn't live based on what Jesus has said so far. Because there's conclusions you might reach based on what's being said that would be easy to conclude but would be a misunderstanding of the emphasis that Jesus is giving. First thing I want to say to you is that Jesus is not advocating laziness and he's not advocating idleness. You might read what he says about God feeding the birds when they don't sow, reap, or store, and then how God clothes the lilies when they don't work, and you might conclude that then, okay, well, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to go and sit on the couch, and God's going to provide for me. Awesome! I've got the revelation. Or it might be that you've not got a job, and actually you're not making any effort to get a job. Jesus is not saying that mindset is okay. Hear me clearly. He's not saying that. We've got to interpret scripture by scripture. Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear there are some among you who walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Okay? Now I know there are Christians today because so I've talked to them, who would read this teaching of Jesus and then use it to legitimize a lack of urgency to get a job. Or they would use it to legitimize their unwillingness to work, or even their expectation that they can spend years and years and years traveling the world under the banner of ministry with a lot more sightseeing than gospel preaching and just expect God's going to provide for them. Whilst they do fundraisers online. I see loads of that in the church today. That's not faith. That's self-centeredness, usually supported by a misunderstanding of this very text that we're reading today. There's too much of that in the church. And the point Jesus is making is that you must not live a life consumed by worry over what to eat and what to drink and what to, to wear to the point that it begins to dictate your life decisions. And it disables you from hearing the true voice and direction of God. He's not giving you a free pass to be self-centered, to be lazy, or to be idle. He is not giving young people a pass to be adolescents until they're 25 years old or 30 years old. It's not what he's doing. Secondly, he's not giving us exemption for taking responsibility for other people. We might read this and think, okay, well, God promises that he's going to provide for everybody, the food, the drink, and the clothing, so we don't need to share what we've got with those who are in need because God's going to provide for them. And again, Scripture interprets Scripture. James says in chapter 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, you know, you pray for them, then go, okay, go, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things for the need, needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? You can't do that. So God will provide, but often he'll provide for us by opening doors so we can work. And he'll provide for others through us and vice versa. What we've got to remember, and the point Jesus is making, I keep emphasizing this because I want you to get it, is that we don't need to be consumed with worry and allow our lives to be dictated by grasping after these things. God knows our circumstances. He knows what we need. He knows when we need it. And he will ensure there's a means for us to be provided for. So we've talked loads about how we shouldn't live because that makes up the bulk of the passage. But the teaching can't be complete until we understand how we must live, which, of course, is the most important point. It's not enough to know what to stop doing. You've got to know what to start doing. We've got to know the reason where to be free from worry is so that we can live freely for the kingdom of God. He says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. That's an instruction with a conditional promise. If you do what God's calling you to do, and you're willing to do that, to put his kingdom before your needs, then he will ensure you've got the food, the drink, and the clothing required to preserve you. He won't necessarily give you everything your flesh wants, but he'll give you everything you need. The bigger question is, what does Jesus mean by seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness? We could spend 20 sermons on that. I've got about four minutes, okay? Just bear with me if I take 10. Don't shoot me, okay? I'm going to do my best to try and condense it, okay? So this isn't exhaustive, okay? But I want to give you something to go home and chew over. So in relation to the kingdom of God, we've got to understand the kingdom is extended one person at a time. Through the preaching of the gospel, through people responding in faith, and then being discipled. That's how the kingdom of God goes forward. So when you're making decisions about how you're going to spend your life, how you're going to spend your time, how you're going to spend your energy, how you're going to spend your gifts, we've all got 24 hours in one day, and then we've got how many days, weeks, months God gives us, years on the earth. When you're making these decisions, Jesus is instructing you to make those big life decisions based on what is most effective for extending his kingdom through seeing people transformed by the gospel. That is the foundation and the basis on which every single one of us who's a believer should be making our life decisions. Not just those of us who are in ministry or those of us who are professionals, there is no such thing in the kingdom of God. But every single person who's a believer, that's how we make our life decisions. That has to be our first priority, bar none, the kingdom of God. Consequently, the driver of your big life choices should not be about what's best for your self-preservation, for your safety, and for your comfort. Living for Christ is not about God fulfilling your material dreams, as some people would have you believe. It's about denying yourself, It's about making sacrifices in order that God would be glorified and God's kingdom would be extended to the ends of the earth. And I believe God wants to challenge us all, every single one of us, on this aspect this morning. When was the last time you sat before the Lord and you asked him if where you've chosen to live is best for the extension of his kingdom through your family and through this church? Genuinely, you sat before him and you said, I'm open to do whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to do, to live wherever you want me to live, to go wherever you want me to go. You show me what's best. If he prompts you to go to, to up sticks and leave your home, it might be your dream home, it might be the dream location, 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 Okay. if, if he prompts you to do that, go to a less attractive area, are you willing to do that? If he prompts you to downsize so you can work more, or sorry, so you can work less, downsize, work less, give more time to the kingdom, give more time to gospel outreach, give more time to discipleship, give more time to clean the church so that unbelievers can come in and hear the gospel, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to work less, live more simply for the kingdom of God? Most importantly, do you even give God the opportunity to speak into that aspect of your life. And I'm not talking about giving God the opportunity to give his opinion, which you might consider. I'm talking about giving God the opportunity to dictate where you should live and where you should work and how much you should work. As if he were your master and you were his slave. Because if you're in Christ, he is and you are. Or do you choose where you're going to live and work in order to support your lifestyle preferences and then you give what's left over to God? How central and primary is the extension of the kingdom in the big life decisions you've made and that you're making right now? I'm not saying as a rule, everyone's got to give up their jobs. I'm not saying as a rule, everyone's got to work less. I'm not saying everyone's got to downsize. But this teaching seems to show that if we're putting the kingdom of God first, we will be in a position where we're relying on God for our daily bread. And it seems to me that if we're just coasting by, and we don't feel the need to come to God in prayer daily in order to plead with him to provide for us, we're quite probably not putting the kingdom of God first in our lives. And we're probably not open to letting him dictate the big life choices that we're making. So part of this is to do with big life decisions, houses, standards of lifestyle, workplaces, but it's just as much to do with the daily choices about living righteously, especially in the area of generosity which we've been talking about this morning. That's also an area which, if we're truly being guided by the Spirit, is going to put us in a position of reliance on God for daily bread to the point where we actually have to pray about it, like Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Not just praying the Lord's Prayer verbatim, but actually as a heart cry, Jesus, because I'm living for your kingdom, because I'm putting your kingdom first, and I'm putting righteousness first, I need you to provide daily bread for me. There's an expectation in the teachings of Jesus that we will take personal responsibility to ensure that every single person who's in need is taken care of, especially those in the body of Christ. That is a New Testament expectation. And what I observe has become the norm in the church in this country. And I I say this in love, so hear me right but I'm just giving a reflection of what I believe is true, is we go to church, we give our 10% to the church, 10% of our income to the church, which we feel is a lot. We tell ourselves it's a lot. And then we expect the people in positions of leadership to look after the poor from the central budget, usually through Christian charities. So if someone's in debt, we send them to cap. If someone needs clothes, we send them to a clothes bank. If someone needs food, we send them to a food bank or a soup kitchen. If someone needs a room, we send them to a hostel. Nothing wrong with those things. They're amazing works. Hear me right. I thank God for CAP. I thank God for the food banks. I thank God for those amazing works. I thank God for Linda Stockley. Like all of that, I really, really do. I think she's amazing. Yeah, I can't help but feel that the New Testament expectation of righteous living is that we will take personal responsibility for the needy. Whereas so often we think our job's complete when we signpost them. a Christian charity in Matthew 25 Jesus explains that when we stand before him he will ask us how we clothed, fed and housed the needy and and honestly I don't think we're going to get away with saying to Jesus well we had this person who came in who was needy so I sent them to Linda and she looked after them we can do that and she can give specialist help and that's amazing or in our church they needed clothes so I sent them to Shauna, and she looked after them We need to take personal responsibility as well as use those amazing resources that are available. James tells us it's not good enough just to pray for those in need, expecting that somebody else will give them clothing and food and housing, but we must provide for them, and he means out of our own bank accounts. He means out of our capital. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts, the members of the Spirit-filled church sold possessions, lands, and homes, in order that there was commonality amongst the body of Christ. They sought to live righteously by giving what they had to the poor. And in consequence, they put themselves in a position where they had no safety net to fall back on other than God, who, by the way, is the ultimate safety net. So let me ask you this, and and this might pinch a little bit, and you might not like me for asking it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's okay if you hate me. I'm, I'm okay be hated. would you be willing to sell your house would you be willing to downsize and release money to release capital to give to needy people in the body of Christ I know the common challenge is would you give up a cup of coffee a week for someone who's in need but I think Jesus expects a little bit more than that for the people he's given his life for How about your car? Would you sell your car? What if selling your car would help somebody else live but it meant you've got, you say I can't because I, I needed to get to work. Well change your job. Work a different job that brings in less money so that you can help somebody else live. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm not saying we've all got to do it. I'm asking if you'd be willing to do it. Not in a hypothetical situation, in a real situation. Genuinely if God asked you to do that, would you be open? To doing that, are you willing to live a life where you regularly lay your assets before God and you say, "God, honestly, just dictate to me what I do with these things. Show me what you want me to do with these things." To be clear, I'm not advocating communism. I'm not. Adv- I'm not advocating. I'm not a socialist. Don't need to know what my political views are. I'm not advocating that you have a shared purse at Regent. Okay, don't freak out. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there's something wrong in the body of Christ. If there's people struggling every single week to get by, to put food on the table, and then there's people living in large homes with two or three cars, spending thousands on holidays every single year, and there's especially a problem if those people are in close relationship to each other. They see each other weekly, but that disparity remains. That was not okay in the early church. But for some reason, we allow it in our churches today. It is not okay. It's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Living righteously requires you to put the needs of other people above your own. It it requires you to be willing to renounce what you've got. Not theoretically, but actually. Faith without works is dead. And our faith needs to be worked out in real, practical sacrifice. What's the biggest barrier to us living that way? Worry. It's not greed. It's not covetousness. It's not, oh, I need three cars. It's, 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 it's worry. That if God tells me to give away what I've worked hard to earn, I'm going to be destitute. And my kids are going to be destitute. God wouldn't want that for me, so I can't do it. That's why Jesus says in verse 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow. We don't usually worry about today. We worry about the future But that worry about the future controls how we live today and it stops us seeking first the kingdom and it stops us living righteously. It prevents Jesus from being our shepherd. It stops us going where Jesus would tell us to go. It stops us giving to anyone who begs like Jesus told us we should do. It stops us hearing God on what it looks like to consider the needs of other people more significant than our own. Worry about the future overwhelms us and it cripples us in the present. So we end up wasting our lives, and we live to preserve our existence rather than living for the kingdom of God, being led by the Spirit. So the Christian is to focus not on tomorrow, but on today. We don't know if we'll have tomorrow. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We're to seek God daily for our provision, whilst being open to the direction of the Spirit, to live in a way that puts God's kingdom in the needs of other people before our own. That is freedom. True freedom. I say this to close. I said at the beginning, when you read these teachings, it should seem like a mountain that's impossible to climb. Now we've unpacked this. Many of you are going to feel like this now. I, I can't do that. That's, that's crazy that you would expect me to do that. You expect me to put my house before God and my car before God and, and, and all these things? <coughs> impossible. If you feel like that, that's a good thing believe it or not, but the key is what we do now, how we respond now. We don't despair, we don't harden our hearts, we don't say, that's impossible, I can't do that. We bow before Jesus, we ask him to forgive us for being self-centered, and then we ask the Holy Spirit to live in the way that he's called us to live. Seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness, and trust him that as we do that and make decisions on that basis, everything we need will be added to us. Just imagine if we all lived that way. Just imagine what the body of Christ would look like. The world might be interested. They might think, wow, there's a peculiar people. How on earth do they live like that? God is among them. Might the band back up. Are we going to do, do a song? Yeah. Now Let's just pray and lay this before the Lord. Thank you for being patient with me for going over. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, that he's laid down his whole life for us. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He gave himself for us. Mm-hmm. We want to be people who genuinely give ourselves for your kingdom and for others. Yes, Lord. And as we think about what this really looks like, it's hard for us we wonder how we could do it. Father, forgive us where we've not been willing to hear you. We've not been willing to lay what we have before you to renounce it and to truly believe that every single thing given to us belongs to you. Help us be a people who let you dictate where we go, what we do, where we work, how we give, what we do with the assets that we have. pray that your spirit will come and direct us and lead us and guide us. Give us ears to hear you and hearts to obey you. Let your word strengthen us this morning. And let us remember how valuable we are to you. And you're you're the God who's on the throne and you're our father who provides for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.